And we're back, episode four of the Let's Talk About God podcast. For those of you who don't know, we usually, we typically record two episodes at once. So we're recovering from recording two weeks ago's episode. Uh, The image of God, that was deep. (laughs) Oh, my brain feels a little fried. But no, I'm good. I'm like, I'm ready to go. I'm ready. This is a good one because this is right at our wheelhouse because it's basically... You know, it's salvation, but it's kind of a deep... We're getting in the nine-foot end of the pool on this oh, one. Oh, yeah. We're so, getting... It's getting a little spooky and spicy, but I got my coffee. You know, we're we're fresh. We're ready to go. So I think, I think this is going to be a good one today. I think that you're going to enjoy it. Um, if you're new to podcasts, I just want to let you know, you don't have to listen to this entire podcast all in one sitting. As I'm recording this introduction, I have no clue how long this one lasts. I know the last one is about an hour long. And here's our heart for this is we want to be able to have a discussion that goes beyond a Sunday morning sermon. That's actually a discussion. And don't feel like you have to sit down all at once and listen to an hour's worth of content. And please, please don't turn us off because it's it's too long. Feel free to just mix it up. Listen, 10 minutes here, 20 minutes there. If it takes you the whole week, if it takes you a week and a half to get through this podcast, that's perfectly fine. This is not something you have to do all at once. So we just kind of want to give you that license here. Don't freak out. We know that it can be long. The old saying is you never eat an elephant all at once. You eat it a piece at a time. And so we we may be giving you an elephant. Just take as much as you can. Today is like couple of elephants. A couple of <laughs> elephants. There are elephants in the room. Yeah. And just and break it up and and we try to be systematic so it should be there should be places where you can stop it and say okay when I pick back up again there'll still be a flow and they're going to the next segment and I can just build on what I've already listened to. If you're a new listener, if you haven't listened to our introduction podcast, my name's Evan. And my name's Chris. And we are local church pastors. I'm the student pastor. He's the lead pastor at High Praises Church in Anderson, South Carolina. And we've created this podcast just to help you um, understand God in a deeper way way in a way that maybe we can't get to through a Sunday morning sermon. And we probably should go ahead and tell them that our both of our last names is Sistar. Yeah, fa- and so father and, father and son. And so we're having fun with this. Today we are asking the question, why did Jesus have to die on the cross for our sins? And if we're going to get the the theological word, which we're going to break down. So nobody, don't have a meltdown. It's all good. Today, we are talking about what theologians theologians call the atonement. The atonement is what we're talking about today, or why did Jesus have to die on the cross for our sins? This is a um, it's a heavy topic, but but please listen to me today. This is not something that's above anyone's heads. This is not something that's just for um, professors or theologians or scholars. This is something that applies to everyone. Yeah. If you confess Jesus is Lord, what this means is this explains why Jesus died, what happened, now, his death and ultimately his resurrection benefits you and gives you salvation, gives you life. So this is something for all of us. This is important for every single Christian out there. So go ahead, get ready. Um, you can understand this is not something that's that's too difficult for anybody, and it's actually, I think, going to be edifying and helpful once we get to the end of it. Well, let's go ahead and get into it. Before we can get into salvation from sin, let's talk about sin, just to begin with, let's talk about the fall. Um, if you listen to last week's podcast, you got a good bit of that as we were talking about Adam and Eve a lot of the time. But what happened? God created everything and it was good, and He created humanity made in the image of God, and they were good. But then something happened. Satan um, came and he tempted Adam and Eve, and they fell into sin. And what God actually told Adam and Eve is he said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because as soon as you do, you will surely die. And so God has already established that, that we have to live for him. We have to obey his commands and disobeying his commands is sin. And as Paul tells us later, the wages of sin is death. But they didn't die. All right. So when, Not immediately. No, not that, immediately. That's my point. Yeah. It, Eve didn't eat. The fruit, which we said two weeks ago, was not an apple. We don't know what it was. Yeah. It, it was the fruit of the tree of knowledge, good and evil. So we don't know. It might have been plaid fruit. It might have been multicolored. We don't know. <laughs> but 
um, and it was shaped like a solo cup. I don't know. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just making stuff up. up. We don't know but but the point is, she ate it. Adam ate it. They didn't die. Yeah. Not physically. Not a physically immediately. Yeah. But eventually, where before they could have lived forever, mm-hmm. but they died spiritually because death is separation. Mm-hmm. And so once they sinned, then the relationship with God was broken. And so it died. So yeah. you ever had a relationship with somebody that ended suddenly and it, it was over? You don't talk to each other. You have nothing to do. That's what happened. It ended. You were once together in the sense of a relationship, and now you're apart. You're apart. It's dead. Yeah. And, and not only so that died, the relationship with God, but then their spirit died. So you're dead. Paul said you have, he has made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. So sin kills your spirit, and God is a spirit, and that's how you have relationship. So the relationship with the dead, and then the capacity, how we have relationship with him, died. So that's that's very important because now I'm spiritually dead. I'm a, I'm a zombie. Yeah. I'm walking around, but spiritually. You're in, as we, theologians would call, depravity. Yeah, now. you're depraved. And you're so depraved. that's very, very important. And then eventually, breath left their body, the body wore down, whatever, and, and they stopped breathing, and they physically died. Okay, and then the ramifications of that is if you're separated from, because sin, death is separation. When, if I have a loved one die, I'm separated from them now. Yeah. I might have their corpse laying in, in, the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the funeral home for the viewing, but they're not there. It's, mm-hmm. I'm separate. Okay, so death is separation. So they got separated from God at that moment. That was death. Mm-hmm. Okay, eventually they died physical death. That's death, all right? But the separation you, Job said, if a man dies, will he live again? The answer is yes. Everybody lives again. Yeah. People who are saved and people who are in sin, when you die, you're going to live. Now the question is where? Yeah. Okay. So if you're spiritually dead and away from God on earth, separated, when you die, that separation continues. Well, you can't go to heaven because that's where God is. You have to go somewhere else. And so you got to go to hell. And I think that we actually, we see this broken relationship almost immediately. God comes walking through, and what do Adam and Eve do? They hide. They separate themselves in a way. They are aware of their own shame and their own sin. And so they separate themselves from God, but then what what does God do? He separates Adam and Eve from himself and from paradise. He kicks them out of the garden, garden. protects the entrance with flaming swords and an angel. And says, you can't have fellowship with me now under this condition. Separation again. Sin separates. Sin separates. That's death. So now we got a serious issue. Yeah. What's God going to do? Here's what God is going to do. We're going to give it to you in the just most general terms, and then we're going to spend the rest of the podcast breaking this thing down. The, The main problem of humanity is sin. It separates God and man. And in God's solution to sin has always been sacrifice. We're going to break that down later, but I just want you to see that as we head into it. Humanity and God are separated because of their sin, and God's solution has always been sacrifice. Here's what's cool is that even in this Adam and Eve story, there's just we were just talking about this. When you look at the first three chapters of Genesis, you learn a lot. Like you, there is a lot to take in. The whole Bible continues to go go back to that. God's solution to sin is sacrifice because what does he do? Adam and Eve now cover their nakedness up with fig leaves, but God actually gives them like animal skin, animal fur to cover them up, to cover their shame. So what does God do? He sacrifices an animal to cover them. Right, because most people probably never think about this. Because the, uh, the narrator, Moses, doesn't specifically say God sacrificed an animal right. for them. Right, so, so that's the thing is he gives them animal skins, and nobody ever stops and says, where, where, where do you go down the local Walmart? And they had, they had a sale, two for one, animal skins. No. Yeah. Where do the animal skins? God, this is important. The, the, all of this, that's what you said, Genesis 1, 2, 3, everything's there. Yeah. If you don't have Genesis 1, 2, and 3, nothing makes sense. It is the foundation. So God... Kills the animals. We don't know what animals they were, but very, were, but very likely they were lambs. They were sheep. Yeah. Okay, he kills these. Let's just assume we don't. We don't know. Yeah. The Bible says, but let's assume it's it's lambs because later they are. Yeah. So he kills these lambs and creates covering, which is a word we're going to come back to in a minute. So he creates covering for Adam and Eve's nakedness. Yeah. And by the way, 
they sewed fig leaves to try to cover themselves. And that's man's effort to cover his sin, and it never works. God wouldn't accept it. And that's why even today, you cannot save yourself. You cannot make yourself right with God. You cannot reconcile yourself to God. It has to be the work of God. And God knew this. Mm-hmm. Even before we were going to start talking about Jesus and him coming to do what we can't do for himself, with Adam and Eve, God knew they can't do anything about this. They're trying, but it doesn't work. He and had so to provide. He had to provide the sacrifice, the the death, and, and, and we'll get into why they had to die, but... I guess in a minute, but that that was important that God provided the sacrifice. He sacrificed for them and provided covering for their sins because sin not only has to be atoned, an atonement has to be covered. Yeah, I'm getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, we'll get, we're we're about to get there, um, and, and so we we see sacrifice in just a couple of other places. I, I, I we're just going to mention it real quickly. I just want you to see that when God um, brings the nation of Israel out of Egypt, He has something called the Passover. Lamb. We were just talking about that lamb. So what God is doing is he's judging Egypt for their sin, but he wants to deliver Israel. So what does he do? He tells them to kill a lamb and to sprinkle their blood, which represents the life, on the doorpost so that God would pass over them. And in a sense, he is passing over their sin, passing over their judgment for their sin so that he could deliver them. So we see an animal being sacrificed to cover sin, to atone for sin. And then finally, once they're uh, a more fully formed nation, he sets up something called the sacrificial system, which is where priests were in the temple where God's presence was, and they would regularly sacrifice for guilt offerings. And then once a year, they had something called the day of atonement, which is that word we're talking about, where the high priest, the highest office, would sacrifice, um, sacrifice animals for the sins of the entire nation. Something always has to be sacrificed in order to deal with sin. That's how God has set this thing up, to provide atonement. So that's sort of the basis. Sin separates man and God. God has always chosen sacrifice to cover it. Now, why sacrifice? And if we can go ahead and jump ahead, you see Jesus Christ. Those are all types or symbols or representations of Jesus Christ because Jesus, we learn, is our Passover lamb. So the New Testament tells us he's our Passover lamb that died for us once and for all, where they had to do the Passover every year annually. Mm-hmm. They had to have the Passover meal, and 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 uh, people in the Jewish faith still celebrate Passover every year. Jesus died on Passover. And what is interesting was the chief priest, if you read the story in the Gospels, the chief priests were responsible, the, the priest, to offer the Passover lamb in yeah. the temple because of the Day of Atonement, and, and so, or, or rather for the Passover. And so they went before Pilate and demanded that Jesus be crucified. And what they didn't even know, they were trying to, they were against him. They were his antagonists. But what they didn't know is they were doing their job. Yeah, they were. Because the Passover had to be killed, except this time it wasn't going to be a lamb. It was going to be the lamb of God. That's some deep stuff right there. I love it. I love it. Well, we are talking about, we're getting into it. All my notes, I've got in all caps and bold, the nitty gritty. So let's get down to the nitty gritty. How does all of this work? Why a sacrifice? Why do we need a sacrifice? Well, before we move on, let's talk about what atonement means. Once again, we know that God and man are separated. God is guilty of their sin, so there needs to be that covering. What does atonement mean? Well, we've got three different definitions of atonement. Dad, will you will you let us in on the two definitions that aren't in our notes right here? Um, one is the cover. Yeah, which we just talked about with Adam and Eve. Right, so Adam and Eve. That's why I made reference to how God covered them with, mm-hmm. with it, and, and they were trying to cover themselves with fig leaves. Sin, by default, Adam and Eve knew that there needed to be a covering. And and man knows, I think sinful men know, my, if, if something's going to happen my sin, i got to So we try to cover our sins with everything. We try to cover it with good works. We try to cover it with religious activity. We try to cover it with blame. We blame, we blame that I'm a victim of a dysfunctional family. I'm a Adam, victim of abuse. Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed Satan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's that we've been shifting blame for all of the period of humanity's existence. Yeah. So we try to cover it with excuses. We, th- that's what we do. Okay, but the reason is because we know sin has to be covered. But So in atonement, God covers our sin. There's a covering so that he cannot see them anymore. And in the Old Testament, there was this piece of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant. 
Okay, and and the Ark of the Covenant was very important, very special. It contained the law of God inside and a few other things through the years. But it was the place in the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. It's It was this piece of furniture set behind this thick, heavy veil. And one time a year, the high priest would go back on that day of atonement, the day of covering, and he would take the blood of this animal, the lamb, and he would, for the atonement, and he would take it and he would sprinkle the blood on the covering. Watch this now. The the, the ark was a was a box, but it had a lid on it. Yeah. To use terms we understand, with these angelic. And if you've ever watched Indiana Jones, yeah. <laughs> okay. The Raiders of the Lost and the Raiders ark. of the Lost Ark. That was the Ark of the Covenant. The Lost Ark was the Ark of the Covenant. And so they find the Ark of the Covenant, which is cool. And and if you'll notice, there were these there was a lid with these angels and their wings going forward. So if you ever watch that movie, it kind of gives you the image. Okay, that lid was called the atonement. It was the mercy seat. Okay? So that's what it means. It's the place where mercy is found with from God and, and where God sits in mercy. Because, mm-hmm. you know, when you sit, you cover. Yeah. Whatever you sit on, you cover it. And so the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. So the blood was covering the sins of all of Israel. Wow. Okay? And, of course, in Jesus Christ is fulfilled as he is our sacrificial lamb and his blood covers everybody's sin who repents and, and accepts it and, and it covers it once and for all. So you have that concept. And then the second one, which I think we're going to get into, I think, we're going to get into the appeasement, the appeasement of wrath. Uh, I don't know if we're going to talk about that. Well, yeah, we're definitely getting into that okay. once we get into the full nitty gritty. Right. So atonement means the appeasement of wrath. Yeah. And there are some theologians that struggle with this because they just have a hard time seeing God as this God who's so angry at the sin of man that he is going to pass judgment and and men are going to die and but he has to be satisfied. Yeah. But that that's look, you read the scriptures, that's what it is. And it's Very not because clear. God's some weird wacky false god of some religion. Oh, it's no, it's that and we're going to get into it. There 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 is the nature of God. We'll get into it in a minute. The nature of God creates this. So it's not that this is is making God. It's God who he is is making this the way it is. He's acting out of his own character. He's not just kind of randomly deciding no, some rules. and we're going to get into this in yeah, a minute systematically. Yeah. But we understand that. So um, it's there has to be blood. There has to be death mm-hmm. to, to satisfy because the wages of sin is death. Somebody yeah. has, got to, has got to die. Okay? So God said... Well, and, and I'll just jump ahead here. So God said, nobody can die for the sins of everybody because you're going to die for your own sins. Mm-hmm. You're guilty. Everybody's guilty. So that's the beauty of the Christmas story. The incarnation is God becomes man, who was a perfect man, a sinless man, and then God did what we couldn't do, and he died. And here's the thing, which if you start reading about theologians and they get all bent out of shape, I just don't believe the appeasement, the penal, it's called the penal substitutionary theory, that God would would do that. Well, just stop a minute and realize God's doing it to himself. Yeah, It's not like he was doing it. I mean, he's going to do it to us because we deserve it. But in God the Father sends God the Son, because so we get back to that Trinity episode again. They're three in one. So God sends the Son, who's God. They're one in essence, power, and glory. So God says, I'm going to pour out my wrath on me, on me, <laughs> you know, through the Son. Yeah. And and uh, and then I'm going to rise me, raise me from the dead, and I'm going to be, you know. So it, you got to remember, it's not like God is doing this to somebody else. Yeah, he's doing it to him. He he's the solution. That's beautiful. Through the incarnation, through yeah. God the Father, through the Son, and and uh, and then he satisfies the wrath of God on our sin. And then of course the third one is reconcile. So you have a covenant, covering, appeasement of wrath, and then reconciliation to God. Yeah. And when we get into reconciliation, the reason I like the word atonement is atonement is one of those few theological words that actually has a Anglo-Saxon root, like an English root. And so it helps me to break it down this way. View it as at one minute, because we just talked about, we saw in the garden that because of sin, man and God who are at one, right, who are unified, who had a good relationship, now that relationship is broken and shattered and they are separated. They're, they're, they're not together anymore. And so the goal of atonement is not, is so that humanity and God who are separated would come back together and be one again. They would be reconciled. So that's where you get at one minute, two separated parties actually become one. 
And so as we as we begin to to talk about this and and really break it down, we're talking about how how God is making it happen so that God and humanity could come back together again. And I want to go ahead and list these definitions, and this is what we're going to be talking about when we talk about atonement. Two different facets primarily of atonement. One, we're going to be talking about the satisfaction view of atonement. This is what you were just mentioning, that God has wrath on sinners because of their sin, and so that wrath or that judgment must be satisfied. God can't just make it go away. Somebody has to die, like you said. Two, we're going to talk about substitutionary atonement. Now, before we get all crazy, because I know that sounds like a super big word. It's really not. Think about a substitute. What does a substitute teacher do? They stand in the place of your normal teacher as a substitute. And what's atonement? It's to take two separated parties and come into one. So what does substitutionary atonement mean? It means that somebody would stand in your place so that you and God, who are separated, could be joined back together. And the teacher can't be there because the teacher's sick or has to be out. The teacher can't do what needs to be done. And so you have to have a substitute. Same thing with us. I can't save myself. You can't save yourself. God can save me. So God comes in and says, you're out today. You're not in class. I'm coming in. I'm going to do what you can't do. Well, here's what we're going to do from this point going on. We're going to begin talking about different parts of this whole situation, and they're going to stack on top of each other. So as we begin going now, everything is just going to sort of compound together to explain our need for a sacrifice, our need for atonement, what that actually looks like, how God satisfies his wrath, and how Jesus is our substitute or stands in our place. So, so first, we've already mentioned this, but we need to bring it up again so that everything builds. We need to talk about human sin. Paul says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because of Adam and Eve, they, you know, Adam was our federal head. Because of them and their sin, we're actually all born sinners. We, we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're born that way. And if we're sinners, we are all guilty of sin. Everybody is guilty of wrongdoing, whether that's doing something, whether that's thinking the wrong thing. You know, you can sin without ever acting upon it, but it's about the state of your heart. And so everyone is born a sinner. We're all sinners. That's it. I can't say anything more about it. You should get it by now. Now, what what does that mean for us? How does that affect us? Well, when human sin meets God's holiness, now that's where we have an issue. God is holy, which means he's perfectly righteous. There's no sin in him at all. He is completely separate and set apart. And because of God's great holiness, he can't be in contact or in unity or in relationship with sin. The scripture says that God can't even look upon sin. So because of God's holiness, he can't be in that relationship with sin, and that's why there's separation. That's why God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, out of his perfect presence. He can't be in that tight relationship with sin. So if there isn't atonement, if there isn't at one there's separation. And so now we have a problem because of human sin and God's perfect holiness. Yeah, and I mean, that's why God kicked the devil out of heaven. You know, Satan was an angelic creature who was an archangel. I had pretty close access to God, if we understand scriptures correctly. And yet his pride and his desire to be like God and even raise his throne above the throne of God, he wanted to take God's place, had him kicked out of heaven. So if you want to say that sin separates even before Adam and Eve— by the way, that's why you can't, if you're a sinner and you say, yeah, but but I still think God ought to let me into heaven. If he wouldn't let the devil stay, yeah. why would he let you in? Yep. I mean, that's, that's how deep this sin issue, it's how serious this sin issue is. And it's why God can't tolerate it, because his nature is that, that, that what is sin? Sin is an affront to God. I mean, before you ever sin against anybody else, you sin against God. Yeah. Every sin is an, is an offense against God. It's a trespass. You're trespassing the law. Be, the Bible's full of pre- precepts. Do this, don't do that. Mm-hmm. Behind every precept's a principle. There's a, there's a reason. But every principle flows from the person of God. God doesn't arbitrarily say, this is right and this is wrong. I, you know, today I just think murder will be wrong. Just today, it's not. It all flows from the person of God. From his character. It's from his character, okay? And so if every sin 
is a, is a breaking of those moral codes that he's established that comes from his character, then you're sinning against who God is. Mm-hmm. That makes this serious. That, that you got to get that. So that's why this issue is, you know, why can't God just wink at it? Why can't just God say, that? Nah, don't worry about it? Because it's not. It's against him. Yeah. And it's who he is. And he is the creator. He is the father of all of us. This puts us in a position, you know, you say, well, okay, well, I sinned against you. Get over it. Well, you can't tell God to get over it. God is your creator. God is the father of all living things. God is the righteous judge. He has established a law that flows from who he is. He didn't. He doesn't arbitrarily make up the laws of right and wrong. Again, they flow out of who he is. They're a reflection of him, his he nature. He is the standard. Okay, so when you understand that, now we realize, whoo, sin is serious. This is a big deal. It's a it's a cosmic crime. It's the highest crime against the highest being. Because it is against God. the God of the cosmos. Yeah. Yeah, that's why it's a cosmic crime, because it's against the God of the cosmos. Uh, and so, so you know, God is this whole—it means he's holy, he's other than what we are. You know, when, that's the thing about humanism. When we try to eliminate God or reduce God to something that's smaller than who he is— then we, we've reduced our understanding of who God truly is. And we elevate ourselves in doing that. Right, and that's what, that's what sin always does. But, but you have to look at God and say, He is other than what I am. He is other than what anything else in creation is. So when I sin against Him, that's a big deal. I mean, because He, he is uniquely different, because he is, he is one, one of a kind. And he is God Almighty. So he is different. That's one reason why when you sin against him, he is he is above beyond who you are because he's God. Mm-hmm. He's the only God. Everything else is humanity. And he's he's infinite. We're finite. Yeah. He's unlimited. We're limited. He's immortal. We're mortal. Mm-hmm. You know, he's all powerful. We're not. You just keep going and realize. So it's the holiness is that he's other than what I am, but he's also pure and perfect and the standard of righteousness and perfection. And that comes with the, real, the realization that we are not. And I think, I think that's why so many people struggle with the holiness of God, because it, it forces you to go, I'm a sinful human. Like, I am lower than God. Like you said, you have to humble yourself. And I think people struggle with that. Who is the guy, I can't remember his name right now, who touched the ark and he died? Do you remember his name? Uh, yeah, you caught me off guard, escapes me, but yeah, there's a, yeah, basically, yeah, come to me. The, basically they were carrying the ark back to Israel, right? Into Jerusalem, correct? And so the ark started tipping over and then this, this one man trying to do the right thing, we think, keep, for, you know, to keep the ark from falling on the ground, he touched the ark. And what you need about what you need to know about the ark is it represented God's holiness and his perfect presence. And so after this man touched the ark, God killed him. And King David was like, God, what are you doing? Like, why would you do that? And what God is showing is that humanity is sinful humanity and God is holy and perfect. And so it unsettled, unsettles us that God would kill him. It's, it's hard for us to accept, but what it really is is a picture of God's perfect holiness and our sinfulness and our depravity, and, and we have to accept that and deal with that. Exactly. Uzzah. It was driving yeah, me Uzzah, crazy. Yeah, I knew it started with a U. U-Z-Z-A-H. <laughs> I wanted to it say was, Uzziah, but I was like, that's not yeah, it. Yeah, you were close. It was driving me crazy. I had to find it out. So I, I would be laying in bed tonight staring at the ceiling yeah, in the no, dark. Going, Who was that guy? So, But yeah. that that's human sin and God's holiness. We are sinful. He is perfect. All right, so if I walked up to you right now, if I reached across the table and slapped you as hard as I could, would that tick you off? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you get mad. I mean, why was why would it shock us that God would have wrath? Yeah. About something so much more serious, which are which are crimes against His nature. Yeah, it's it's us in our pride saying, God, our law and our decisions are better than yours. You say murder is wrong, but we say murder is right. It's a going against the very nature and character of God. Yeah, or people say, well, that's too radical. Okay, well, lying, you say lying is wrong, but God, white lies. Sometimes a white lie is necessary. And, you know, sometimes I need to lie because I don't want to suffer consequences, consequences if I tell the truth. So I'm, I'm going to tell a lie so I don't get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's, there you go. And, but but again, the wrath of God, it, it's just, and, you know, I think there's this sense that um, God's just this angry God. Do you remember we talked about the God of the Old Testament versus God of the yeah, New Testament? He's, he's just, green oh, he's just this angry. He's just angry. And it's it's not. It's not 
that he's this big, angry God. He's just a God who is angry because his creation made in his image mm-hmm. is instead of reflecting his image. Rejecting his image. Oh, there you go. Did you like that rhyme there? Yeah, that was that good. Was, that was smooth. Ah, that was good. Well, I think that leads us into the proper conversation about God's wrath. I think we we need to accept that and define that. So humanity, remember this all builds on each other. Humanity has sin and it offends God. It's a crime against God. Why? Because God is perfect and he is holy. So in response to humanity sinning against a holy God, God now has righteous and holy wrath against those who have sinned against him, against those who have committed the great cosmic crime. He can't tolerate sin, and so he pours his his wrath and his judgment out on sinners for doing what they've done. That's what that's what holy wrath is. We deserve the judgment and the punishment that's coming our way because we've sinned and rejected the image that God has. And then two, which also leads because I think you got to go to this because we we, we sort of got a, a plan here. He gets to God's justice. Mm-hmm. So how is how can you say that the wrath is just not God ticked off? Yeah, it's, this is much farther than just anger. Right, yeah, angry. God's just angry. He's an angry God. You know, you're you're an angry elf. You know, whatever. Anyways, <laughs> my, my little elf, elf, my little elf uh, reference. reference from the movie. Um, but it's because God is also just. Yeah. So God is the righteous judge. Um, heaven is a courtroom. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, heaven is seen as a courtroom. Um, Job, when he went through what he did, he said, oh, that I could stand before God and plead my case. I mean, it's heaven is a courtroom. God is a judge. He's the righteous judge, and he has laws. And those laws, again, flow out of who he is. Those laws exist because God exists. If God didn't exist, then they would be man-made. But because God exists, they're God-made. And so we're violating the, 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 the law of God, and so... We are un- we're we're unjust. We've done the wrong thing. We we've, we've committed those crimes, and that's what justifies God's anger. Yeah, exactly. Okay, because like a judge who sits on a bench, a federal judge in a crimes committee, stand well, the crime didn't involve him, but his job is to uphold the law. But what if the crime was against him, and now you're standing before him as the judge? That that's kind of the similar is is God. You your crime broke not only his law, but it was against him. And I think the, the thing that helps us out is in reality, whoever you are, whether, whether you believe in God or not, you all want justice. Like in reality, we, we go, why does God have to send us to hell? Or why, you know, why does this happen? Why does God have to judge us? But in reality, you want to judge. What a little, you want justice. What do little children say? Little ch- if something happens, what, what do they say? That's not fair. Yeah. Little kids will say that. They at at a small age, little children said, "That's not fair." And as a small child, we understand fairness or equity, and we want it. And we want what's been wrong to be made right. Think about this. Think about how wrong God would be if He let every sinner and wrongdoer go off scot free. So, so for this to be clear, let's take it to the extreme. Think about how wrong God would be if He says, "Oh yeah, I'm. I will definitely allow ISIS." and terrorists, and murderers, and rapists, and abortion, that's that's perfectly fine. I'll just let that go off scot-free. Right. You, you, no penalty for that. You can go to heaven. Nobody wants to be penalized for their white lies, but they demand justice for the major things of this world. In reality, murder and abortion and the little white lies all go against God's law. It's all sin. We all want justice, and, and think about your own life. If somebody came and did something horrible to your family or your family members or your wife or whatever, we have an American criminal justice system that says they've done wrong and now they're going to be repaid for what they've done, and and you crave and desire that justice. Right, and let's be honest. Now, this is this is about sinfulness. We crave justice when when the sin is against us, the offense. But if we do it. We want mercy. Yeah, we do. We want to get away with it, or we want mercy. Mm-hmm. But that's that's not equity. Justice means that's why the scales. The little woman's blindfolded, and she's holding the scales. Yep. It's got to be. It's got to be fair. And so, the wrath of God, the sin of man, the justice of God. I just thought I'd share this. This is why when you read the New Testament, especially, here's how man is presented as a slave who has to be redeemed. 
as an enemy, enemy who must be reconciled, as a corpse that has to be resurrected, as a captive whose oppressors must be overthrown, as a criminal who must be justified. And so as we begin to, to look at all of this, so humanity's sin, we've sinned against a holy God. And because of that, he's poured out his wrath on us, and he pours out his wrath on us because he is a just God. We have done wrong, and therefore we deserve repayment for what we've done. And here, though, here's where we begin to make the turn and begin to look at God's sacrifice for us. So if God is going to be just, and right, he has to repay injustice, and that is a part of his character. We also know this, God is love, he is grace, and he is mercy. God desires that all men would come to the knowledge of salvation. God wants all people to be saved. He loves the world. He got, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. So, so God, yes, he has wrath, he is holy, he is just, and at the same time, God is love, he is grace, he is mercy. He wants to be merciful to us, he wants to forgive us, he, want, excuse me, he wants us to be in right relationship with him. He loves his creation. So now God is in a situation where he has to reconcile his justice and his holiness with his love and his grace and his mercy. Or to put it in the terms of Romans, uh, I think it's 326, he has to be both just and justifier. That's good. So he's got he's to be just. He's got to be fair. He's got to do the right thing, okay, because he's God. He's got to deal with sin. Sin has to be punished, and yet he wants to justify us. Yes. And so how, here is the, here is the question, how can he be just and how can he be a justifier? And the answer is in Jesus Christ, which is great because this is something that maybe our listeners never thought of. So it isn't that 2,000 years ago, as time has gone on up to that point, God said, you know, we probably ought to do something about this sin issue. You know, what? What? it's not working. This sacrificial thing's not working. What, do you, what, do you, what should we do? And holy counsel, God the Father looked at God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, you know, what should we do? That's not... The Bible says that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. It's always been his plan. So in God, because he's God and he knows everything perfectly, past, present, and future, they knew before they created the world, before Adam and Eve were in the garden, they knew sin was going to happen. And so in holy counsel, it was determined, predetermined, that God the Son would be the answer so that he could come and pay sin's price and do what needs to be done to provide atonement so God could be just, fair, and still justify us and free us from our sin. And that, that's, that paints the picture of the two words we used earlier. God has wrath on sinners that must be satisfied. And so Jesus has come to be our substitute to stand in our place to take the death that we deserve and to take the wrath that we deserve so that Jesus is our substitute so that we don't have to die. That's God's love and grace and mercy. And yet God's justice is upheld. Why? Because he pours his wrath out still, but this time not on us, but on Jesus. Yeah, the penalty is paid. Yes. The penalty of death, but it's Jesus' death. So because he died, I don't have to die. And then because he lives... I can live, not now. I can have abundant, super abundant life, life in eternal life now and, and in the future. And and all this is seen in Jesus. I mean, I'm thinking right now in first, uh, John, the Gospel of John chapter 1, which talks about the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, which kind of ties in with two weeks ago with the image of God, that Jesus is the perfect image and reflection of God, of course, because He is God. But in flesh, He was the reflection of God perfectly. And so he came. And then John said, the law came through Moses. And that's what the Jewish people knew at the time was this, this law. And the law said, all of these things are wrong. And, and everybody said, we can't keep all these laws, not, not just the Ten Commandments, but these other laws, the ceremonial laws. And so it was just burdensome. And they said, we just feel like we're sinners all the time. And they were. But, but the writer said, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So this is what's important. We're talking about the justice of God and yet the love of God. All right, in this balance. 
That balance was found in Jesus. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What's another way of saying this is that Jesus came and spoke the truth and said, here's the truth. I'm holy, you're not. I'm sinless, you're not. Uh, I, I'm, I am God, and you're fallen man. Here's the truth. Mm-hmm. Here's the truth. You're a murderer. You're a sinner. You're an adulterer. You you're, deserve judgment. You deserve judgment. You deserve to die. You you deserve to be punished. Yeah. Now, I, that's that's the truth. Even the demons, when he would encounter demons, would scream, "Don't don't! Are you here to punish us before our time?" They saw Jesus as the righteous judge mm-hmm. against them for their sin, their fallenness. Because there's no redemption for the devil. Yeah. Thank God there's redemption for humanity. Okay. Uh, and so, but then there's grace. And and so the woman who's caught in the act of adultery, and they're ready to stone her. And he says, you, the one without the first, without the sin, you cast the first stone. And starting from the oldest to the youngest, they all leave. And when the woman looks up, he says, woman, where's your accusers? She said, none. I have none. But, well, she still had one, mm-hmm. Jesus because she was standing before a holy God. He may have been a man, but he was the holy God, and she was still a sinner in his presence. And yet she's. there has to be this sense of, I'm unworthy, I deserve to be punished, she's ashamed, she feels guilty, she's embarrassed, she's afraid, and, 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 the, law, and the truth said, I'm the son of God, and you're an adulterer, been caught in the act of cheating on your husband. You've been unfaithful. And what does he say to her? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more, which are the greatest words you can ever hear from God. Yeah. Truth, but at that moment, grace. Yeah. And 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 it implied within that is that she had a repentant heart. Mm-hmm. She had a heart that said, I'm so sorry for I don't want to be this way. And I want to change. And he saw that. He knew that. And he did what only can God can do, and he forgave her. So as we and I and I love that that we can reach this point that we have to acknowledge God's holiness and his wrath. But at the same time, he is truth, yeah, but he is grace. And we can't let that overcome his character. <clears throat> and we think that God's just that angry, just horrible God, that it's like God stares down truth, and even though we deserved our punishment, he made a way by sending his only son himself to die for us. And in the face of truth, grace is still able to prevail if we put our faith in Jesus. Yeah, and you and I, exactly. I mean, that's it. Perfect. And and you and I both know as, as pastors, especially here in America, we've been concerned because the last few years in the church in America and among some preachers, there's been a swing from balance to grace. It's all about mm-hmm. grace, 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 grace. And so God is gracious. God is great. God God will, God will forgive you. God will cleanse you. God, don't worry about God. God God's just... It's all about grace. Don't worry about your sin. God's God will just and there's well, I don't think we've had enough emphasis on the seriousness of sin and the fact that yeah. if you don't repent from sin and you say, Well, what's the big deal? Well, it's almost like, well, you can keep sinning. Don't worry about it, because there's grace. grace yeah. yeah, don't worry about it. No, that's not God doesn't want to just say, Okay, keep sinning, but I'll forgive you. It's stop sinning. You know, Jesus, Jesus says sin no more. Yeah, that's what Jesus told that woman. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So there is not only there's there's grace, but but it swings you back to the truth. And the truth is you can't keep sinning. Mm -hmm. Sin. If you do it again, you're just going to you're going to break the law again. And there's a front. So there'll be grace again. But the point is, there's not grace to just keep on sinning. There's grace to not sin. Yeah. That's grace. God's grace is not to just forgive me when I sin; it's to help me not to sin anymore. Yeah. Through through the transforming power of Jesus Christ and through the presence of the Holy Spirit, that's the beauty of salvation. And so we got to be careful we're not swinging, you know, over here to over here. We got to stay right in the middle. I was listening to a pastor like a few months ago, and it just it bothered me so much because he's like, you know, we think about God that He's angry and He's got all this wrath. That's not true at all. And I'm like going. No, it is. It is true. And that's okay. And and the way that I view it is this, is that grace without God's wrath is shallow. God's love without God's wrath is shallow. Because if we don't have the correct idea of what God is saving us from, then God's salvation really doesn't seem that like that much of a big deal. 
But the reason that you can worship and sing and cry tears of joy is because you know who you are, where you should be, the judgment you should be under through God's perfect and holy wrath. And yet, in the midst of that truth, grace came in the form of his son, Jesus. You're right on. Jesus said, "If whoever is forgiven much loves much. Yeah. And whoever's forgiven little loves little. And if we diminish the the seriousness of our sin and diminish the amount of wrath that was against us, then we diminish the forgiveness of God, which means then we don't love him because we say, yeah, it was a big deal. Okay, well, pre- that bad, yeah, right? if the preacher's preaching like that, no, but if you hear, oh God, I'm under I'm under the penalty of sin and God's wrath. God, this is serious. I'm going to go to hell for eternity. I'm going to be separated from everybody I love and from God, and this is horrible, and I'm, I'm, I'm in a bad place. Then you cry out to God with passion and fervor and, oh, God, repentance, forgive me. I'll turn. I want to change. I don't want to be like— And there's passion and fire and, and intensity and purpose, and then God forgives you. And you realize what a horrible person you are and how deep you are in sin and how bad you've been in, in, in violating and transgressing the law of God. Then when he forgives you, oh, you love him. Yeah. You love him because you say, oh, boy, where would I be if it wasn't, you know, where, where would I be if Jesus didn't love me? That old Andre Kraut song. Yeah. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually reading a book. I know we're kind of jumping ahead of ourselves, but that's fine. I'm reading a book about... John Wesley right now. John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist movement. It wasn't really a denomination at that point. It was just a movement. He remained an Ang- Anglican minister, you know, the Church of England for, for the entirety of his life. And he was kind of a revivalist, and he preached something called heart religion because at the time, religion was cold. It was intellectual. It was boring. It was just whatever. But he preached that, that religion should do something, that Christianity in particular should do something to your heart. When he got saved, truly saved, he said he felt a strange warmth in his heart. So he preached something called heart religion, but he said it's not emotion for the sake of emotion. Like you and I have probably been places or seen videos of like maybe church services that are emotional for the sake of emotion. You know, it's not really grounded anything. John Wesley preached that we should have heart religion, but it's not based on emotionalism and just getting wild, but actually on sound doctrine that the doctrine of the depravity of man and the atonement of Christ, that good, sound doctrine should actually stir our emotions up to love God, to feel something deep inside of ourselves, to, to, to praise and to worship him with everything that we have. Because when we intellectually have a grasp of our sin, of what Christ has done for us, emotionally, it should do something powerful and long-lasting and life-changing inside of us. When you are saved, I think there should be godly sorrow. Paul talked there about a be. godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Yes. So it is. there's a path. You, get, you have a godly sorrow for your sin that then leads you to a place where you repent. And that sorrow comes from God. So it's a godly sorrow because God is making mm-hmm. you sorrowful because you're seeing how bad your situation is. And I think after you're saved, if you do something wrong— there should be godly sorrow mm-hmm. that leads you to repentance, and that you say, "Oh, I got to get this out of my life. I got to stop this. This was a bad decision. I can't. I can't live this way." So, yeah, you're right. It all it all ties together. I think that's fantastic. Um, before we get on, maybe some of the the more practical implications. J- just while we're still in the heavy theological thing, just to end it, let's talk about why Jesus. So we know that in the Old Testament, we, they sacrificed actual lambs, actual goats and bulls and various different animals. Talk to me about why was Jesus the perfect sacrifice for us as compared to something else? What did those animals do for us and not do for us? And then what has Jesus done for us? The animals provided a temporary covering. Mm-hmm. So whether it was a guilt offering or a sin offering, trespass offering, there was all these different offerings in the Old Testament and then the, and then the Day of Atonement offering and Passover lamb they they provided a temporary covering of sin. They appeased the wrath of God for that particular sin or for the nation, if you talk about the Day of Atonement, and, and they were temporary. But the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats could not do what we needed, and that was to do a permanent work, mm-hmm. okay? And so Jesus comes as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who is sinless but who is a human. So it's not an animal 
So see, the animals were dying in our, in our place. Mm-hmm. So instead of me dying for my sin, I brought an animal and the animal died. And so, but the animal was an animal, okay? When Jesus comes as a human being and dies, then he is a human. It, that's why he had to be made like us. Okay, yeah. that's what it says. He'd be made like to his brothers, to be the captain of our salvation. So he became one of us. And, and can I add, too, that not only is he the human, but he's, like we talked about last podcast, the second Adam. Adam was the federal head representing all of humanity, where here comes the second Adam representing all Representing of all of humanity and representing God. Mm-hmm. And so he comes and he dies on the cross and, and does what we cannot do for ourselves, and what the bulls and the lambs could not do, okay? And what I like to say is everyone in the Old Testament through the bulls and the lambs and the goats and the sacrificial system looked forward to the, to the cross. Yeah. What we get now in the time we live in is we look back to the cross. Yeah. So they were looking forward. So every, every goat, every bull, every lamb that died screamed, Jesus is coming. Mm-hmm. I'm not enough, but the one who is is coming. And today we don't do that system anymore because he's come. And I look back and say, he's already come and he's enough. He's enough. And so that's the power of Jesus. I think it's it's cool to picture um, that Jesus is the one standing in the gap between God and humanity because in his incarnation, he is both God and humanity. I almost imagine just like, like a man standing in the middle with like two chains or two ropes pulling us together because he's the only one who could do that, both God and man in the same person, uniting us together, that atonement, that at one minute, once again. Yeah, I mean, that, and again, it just gets back to the love of God that God would do this. I mean, you know, there was a time when all of humanity had blown it, and God just said, yeah, you know what, I'm just going to scrap them all and start over. Mm-hmm. And it was called the flood. And he almost did, except there was a guy named Noah who found grace in his eyes. Three times, it was righteous, and three times the Bible says, but Noah found grace in his eyes. So in his holiness, in his justice, God said, you know what? They're not going to repent. They're not going to change. Every generation, he knows, he knows Mm -hmm. every generation is just going to be a constant perpetuation of wickedness. And he said, that's not why I created you. And and you're made in my image, but you're not reflecting my image. You're reflecting sin. And so I'm just going to kill you all. But he found Noah. And yet in his justice at the same time, he realized, I, can, I can't judge this righteous man, Noah. Right, because he was righteous, because mm-hmm. he, he served God and he trusted God and put his faith in God. And so, you know, God could have done it again. But he said, no, this time, you know, I'm gonna send, we're going to send Jesus to die and create a, create a way where man can be saved. And so you see the love and the compassion that God has for humanity uh, that, that, again, balances the anger and the wrath. Look, to use the very simplest phrases, he abhors and hates our sin, but he loves a sinner. Yeah, he does. That, that's the simplest way to put it. And so that's what drove him to, to say the sacrificial system. And why it went as long as it did, only God knows. He has a time. But we do know that Paul said, but when the fullness of time had come, yeah. God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. And so it was just the right timing. It was, yeah. It was a, it was a timing thing when, when Jesus came, and so he came at the perfect time to be the Lamb of God uh, who takes away the sin of the world. Well, I think to close it out, let's talk about some of our practical implications and in, in responses because theology is not um, just sort of intellectual or whatever. It applies, it, it applies to our everyday lives, to who we are, to how we live. Um, it's not just something to merely study. I think one of the things that we can take away from the sacrifice of Jesus from the atonement is that our sins are taken care of once and for all. And so I think a lot of us, we struggle with the idea that Jesus has taken all of our sins, past, present, and future. His one sacrifice covered that. And I think sometimes we struggle to believe that's enough. And so we, kind of like Adam and Eve, try and add on top of that. We're like, well, Jesus, we know that you forgave me of my sins and all that, but I just sinned and I feel bad. So we try and do little things to make up for it. We like read our Bible extra hard or go do a nice thing to somebody. or We try and do something to make ourselves feel better as if we could add to the cross. Or we just beat ourselves up. Or we beat ourselves up. Or hold up. ourselves under condemnation when God's forgiven us. Yeah, when judgment's been removed. I remember I had a, when I was a teenager, I think my mom had given me this 
book, and it was just a great discipleship book, and there was a cartoon in it. And so there's a teenager, and he's sinned, and he's on his knees, and he said, oh, God, I'm so sorry for what I've done. And the voice from heaven from God says, I forgive you. But the, the young man in the next frame says, oh, God, I'm sorry. I just feel so bad for what I did. Please forgive me. I'm so sorry, God. Then the next frame, he's just down on his face. He's just, be- <laughs> he's just he's beating himself yeah. up. I, I was so stupid. I'm so wrong. And in the fourth frame, God speaks and says, what sin are you talking about? And that's the whole point. The, the theology there is, I, forgi- I forgave you back in the first frame, but you, you keep, keep bringing it up. Yeah. What, are you, what are you talking about? What That's you, wonderful. Yeah, it's gone. What are you talking about? It's done. So yeah, we we try to beat ourselves up. We just, but you're right. He, it's a once and for all. And that's you. You said what's the difference between the lambs and the bulls and the goats and Jesus is that they had to be repeated because they were inadequate. But his sacrifice is adequate. It's enough. That's the thing that ought to get you excited right now. Wow, it was enough. There doesn't need to be any more. It's enough. And and it kind of leads to. The, the concept of, but what do I have to do? And somebody said, you don't have to do anything. It's already done. You just put your faith for by grace, you are saved through faith and that of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Lest any man should end up boasting. You, God's not going to let you do anything else because you'll brag and say, I saved myself or I helped God save me. Mm -hmm. And you don't help God save you just as I am. And I come and I'm going to believe what you did. And there's this great concept, Evan, that you appropriate his work to your life. It's, it's, so, it's such an important concept. He did the work. I just appropriate it by faith. I believe that what he did is enough, and I lean on his grace. I just accept the gift freely. Everything he's done, he's done on your behalf. Yeah, I've tried to do things for people sometimes, and they'll try to pay me. I'm like, no, I don't want your money. The yeah. point is I'm wanting to do something for you. Well, let me give you, let me do this. You ever try to buy somebody's meal, and they say, well, let me get the tip. That's the same yep. thing. It's like God. God says, I'm going to buy your meal. He's like, well, yeah, well, God, let me do the, Let me give the tip. Yeah. And God's like, no, I'm going to pay the meal, and I'm going to get the tip because you can't do anything. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to let you do anything. I got it all. That's the only way this works. Yep. And we get to identify, kind of going on the same thing with everything Christ has done. So we get to identify with Christ's death that we've died to sin, and we get to identify with his life that we get to live a life towards God now. That instead of us taking, actually taking the punishment and the death, we just identify with Christ's, and now we identify with his resurrection. Right, and that's why water baptism is a mandate. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. an ordinance, and that's why... In the church, you have to be water baptized. You don't have to you know, say, well, do I have to be water baptized to be saved? Well, the thief of the cross didn't, but it is a commandment. It doesn't save you, but it's a commandment post-salvation. Right, so you should do it, and if you don't do it, God's not happy. I mean, that's mm-hmm. like any other command, and if you break a command, I think that's sin. I was about to say, so, it sounds a lot like So you're to supposed to, if you know that you're supposed to be water baptized, yeah. you should do it, but that's that the water baptism, when you go in the water— you stand there and you're saying, here I am representing who I was before sin, but then we take you under, we bury the old you, so you died with Christ. Mm-hmm. So when you say we identify with his death on the cross, I didn't have to die, he died for me, but I'm going to identify with, we put you under, but then we bring you up out of the water and representing resurrection, just like Jesus came out of the tomb. I'm I'm identifying with that resurrection. I've come up to newness of life. Now he came out literal life, yeah. you know, physically dying and then coming back. The body came back like my spirit was dead, but I come up and now my spirit's alive and I'm in Christ mm-hmm. and I'm a new person and old things have passed away and and every funeral's I mean every water baptism's a funeral. Yeah. Right? Cuz cuz we're burying the old you yeah. and there's a new you coming out. So that's why water baptism expresses all that. And the same thing with communion, you're partaking of the body and the blood of Christ. You're identifying You're identifying with, that. with the death. Yeah. Right. It's not not truly the death. It's symbolic, but yeah. it's still very very serious uh, 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 connection mm-hmm. that's there. Yeah. And you show forth the Lord's death till he comes. I think another wonderful aspect of of the atonement and God's sacrifice is it gives us a picture of God's great love for us which 
um, leads us to worship. We mentioned this earlier, but God always provides the sacrifice. And so out of God's great love for us, he provided the sacrifice, which is himself. We see this through Abraham and Isaac. You know, Abraham's about to go sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And then what does God do? He provides the ram in the thicket for him. The ram's in the thicket. And God provided himself, his own son, for us. That's God's great love for us. Yeah, we love to talk about Jehovah Jireh or Jehovah Yireh. I think it's a proper way to say it. We we always like to say Jehovah Jireh, but it, the, the Lord who provides. Mm-hmm. And we always look at that as the Lord is, is the provides my needs and provides my wants my and answers my prayers. But what that really means is that He provides salvation. Yeah. The Lord who provides is that He He provides what we could not provide. Mm-hmm. And and you're right. I mean, Isaac, in, in the Old Testament, Isaac is a, is usually a type of symbol of Jesus Christ. Yeah. But in this case, the ram in the thicket is the type because yeah. he, he was going to die, and then the ram, God provided. And so, and Jesus saw himself as the one being provided. I mean, he saw himself as the sacrifice. He knew he was the lamb of God who takes the sin of the world. He saw himself as a ransom. He, he, he said, I'm, I've come, the Son of Man has come to give his life a ransom for many. Uh, he saw himself as a substitute. He said, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. So he knew. He knew what his purpose was, and I'm glad he did. I'm glad he, I'm glad he came and, Me too. And, and, and did what needed to be done, or we would still be lost in sin today. Yeah. Anything else how we can take away from the atonement? Uh, I just think that the reconciliation part is incredible, that God removes our sin and justifies us and then restores us in our relationship because there is a concept of enmity mm-hmm. with God that we're enemies. Yeah. And so um, there's adversity, and so God reaches out to us and brings us and bridges the gap. Um, I, I remember when I was younger, there was a company, and I don't know if they still make them, but they make these little tracks. And you could read them, and these tracks were everywhere. And I remember there was a track that somebody made, and it's probably one of the best illustrations of the atonement and what we're talking about today is that there's the picture, if you can picture this, of a gulf, okay, a chasm. There's two sides, and there and there's a chasm. And man is standing on this side, and God is on this side. And, the, and in the middle, that's sin. Yeah. Sin separates us. From God, and we can't get across the chasm. There's no way. And then the image comes of the cross, and the cross is big enough that the arms of the cross, the horizontal beams, bridge the gap. That's great. And that's Jesus. And so Jesus comes in and bridges the gap so that now God has made a way. Okay, man didn't make the way. Through Christ, God has made a way where now man can come to God and they come through Jesus Christ. And and so he so he who knew no sin became sin for me and literally a sin sacrifice for me. Wow. And I think it's interesting today we have not talked about this but it's worth just taking a few more minutes is it when Jesus died on the cross the wrath of God that was put against him as a substitute was because he became sin. He just didn't take on our sins. He who knew no sin became sin. Mm-hmm. So in in he became every wicked, vile thing that we are. Because in the Old Testament, if you killed a lamb for your sins, you put your hand on the head of the animal. The scapegoat. Well, well, well yeah, this is different. Right, yeah, yeah, but yeah. the scapegoat it happened to, and then if you, you had a guilt offering, a sin offering, yeah. you would— you, you, you would stand there at the altar with the priest. The priest would kill it, but you would put your hands. And why? Because there was a transfer of your sin to the, to the animal. Okay, when Jesus was on the cross, there was a transfer of all the sins of all of humanity collectively to Jesus on the cross. And so he became sin. That's why the sky went black, and that's why there was an earthquake, because nature itself was rocking and reeling with the fact that, that God— had taken on and become the sin of humanity. And this is this is rich. This is deep stuff. You think about what happened on the cross, and so there he's hanging. And by the way, can I throw this in because it's my pet peeve? His, he's hanging on that cross. Uh, there have been multiple preachers. So I know some people are going to disagree with me, but if you go study this, you'll find the truth. You know the truth. The truth sets you free. 
I have heard it in songs. You know where I'm going, don't yeah. you? I've heard preachers <laughs> preach it, that when Jesus hung on that cross doing the work of atonement, that God and he became sin, that God couldn't look on his son, couldn't see, couldn't look on the sin of, of humanity and yeah. sin, and God turned his back on his son. That is wrong. That yeah. is false theology. And I don't know who started it, and it's been it's been it's been repeated constantly. But if you go to Psalm 22, people say, Well, Jesus said, um, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he did. No, no, no. He felt forsaken. That was his humanity. His humanity, just like every time something bad happens, don't you, the first thing you wonder is, where are you, God? Mm -hmm. You feel forsaken, but he was not forsaken. And if you read Psalm 22, which is which has the phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken he's me? He's quoting it. He's yeah. quoting it. Jesus was quoting Psalm 22. If you read and you read further in the Psalm, it says he has not turned his face to, to, from me. It, it says that. It said the, the Psalm has said, which is a messianic psalm, so it's representative in the Old Testament. What, what Jesus, he, you have not turned your face from me. God, if God forsakes Jesus at the worst moment of his life, then why, what makes me wonder if he'll never turn his back on me? He didn't turn his back on him. Sometimes you feel forsaken, but God did not turn his back. He had his eye because he wanted to see, is this going to go through? And he watched his son pay the price. Just it, 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 No priest ever turned his back on the lamb. The priest had blood up to his elbows. And God was watching the whole thing because he had to see whether or not the price was going to be paid. Yep. And the price was paid, and he, and he breathed his last and said, Father, into your hands. They were, they were connected. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And in fact, three days later, he, he rose again. So right. I would argue that he didn't forsake him. He no. was actually with him the no, entire time. He was time. with him the whole time. And he told him, yeah. he said, Father, it is finished. His last words, it is finished. Mm -hmm. And the Father said, you're right. Yeah, It's done. The, it, uh, it, the, the price has been met. The penalty satisfied. Uh, you've done it. It's yeah. done. It's done. And then three days later, he came out of the tomb. I'll tell you a little story. Maybe close this thing out. It was a little girl. This kind of thing touches my heart. So I don't know if you're supposed to get emotional, but here I'm getting emotional on a podcast. <laughs> little girl was dying, and her parents were divorced. And her heart's desire was for her parents to be reconciled. And they're standing at her bed. This is a true story. Father's on one side, mother's on the other side, and they're alienated. And she reached over, took her daddy's hand, took her mother's hand, pulled them together, and breathed her last, saying to her parents, my dying wish is that you two would come back together. That's what Jesus did on the cross. We were alienated. We were separated. And dying on the cross, reached out his arms to God and to man and said, my dying wish is that you two come back. 